Hi, and welcome to the Red Tunic Podcast, a podcast where I look to rediscover what makes gaming fun and enjoyable by having positive conversations with those related to the industry. My name is Link, and today I'm joined by Benjamin Rivers, a game developer working with his wife under the studio name Bansy Co. that has made such titles as Home, Alone With You, and Worse Than Death. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. Oh, no. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to join me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Uh, I love talking about games, and I talk a lot, so get ready. No, I'm looking forward to it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm ready. So, Benjamin, before we get started, though, if you don't mind, would you just mind, you know, telling us a little, little bit about yourself and, and the studio, just for those that might not be aware? Yeah, so we just celebrated, uh, this is uh, 2021 when we're recording this, and we just celebrated uh, our ninth year officially as a studio. And we started off just being called Benjamin Rivers, Inc., uh, because I was freelancing at the time. And when I incorporated, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know that I was going to be making games. <laughs> so we just sort of rolled into it. Uh, but as we hit our ninth year, we realized we wanted to rebrand, which is why we are now called Dancy Co. So I've been here making games in Toronto, uh, for over nine years. Um, and I've been working in design and other things for, oh God, a long time before that. Uh, so yeah, I feel like I'm a lifer at this point, pretty deep into it. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, I think if you've been doing it for as long as you have and and such uh, and in, in Toronto, especially, which has such a um, from from what I've heard and spoken with other people, it does have such a, a nice indie scene to it. Um, so, yeah, so I, I imagine a lifer is very much a fair thing to refer to it as, if you will. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty great here. There's a. Uh, there are so many talented developers in this city. Sometimes I still uh, find out about companies that I don't know or, you know, I'm not super familiar with. And I wait and I, and oftentimes I'll see it, you know, on like a showcase for another, you know, for like Xbox or PlayStation or Nintendo or something. And then go, wait a minute, hold on. I didn't know those guys were here too. Uh, and there's some developers that we work with now and they sort of work with other developers and there's games launching all over the place. And I realize, oh, you know, it feels like there's, feels like the development industry gets larger, but it also gets smaller at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think or I hope maybe after uh, this whole pandemic thing is done and over with. And I say that in air quotes because who right. knows anymore. Right. Um, but I imagine once that's over and you guys are able to start doing the, the little get togethers or whatnot, as I understand, uh, do exist and happen. Um, I might be wrong. And if I am, oops. But um, I imagine getting to see all the other people that are starting to come out and pop off uh, just makes the the idea of maybe those get togethers or what have you all the more exciting when you get to actually see, you know, the success of other people in uh, now Toronto's not small, but I'm going to say a relatively small ecosystem, all things considered, if I may. Yeah. I mean, the one thing about Canada, of course, is that, you know, we don't have a lot of large cities. It's not like the U S uh, you know, our populations are very, uh, small things considered um so when people tend to congregate they do so in one of you know our few major cities so communities just naturally seem to uh, pop up because people are less spread out than they might be in a country that has like you know more larger cities definitely definitely and you know just a quick note on that one because i i love sharing this really pointless fact about canada for no reason other than because i'm weird uh, but one of the things I love about Toronto is the population of, uh, arguably, 
unarguably our largest city, is bigger, has a higher population than I think most, like most, almost all of our provinces. Right. Um, so, sorry, I, I know unnecessary sidetrack. I just, one thing I, I love sharing because it's hilarious to me. Yeah, lots of small towns. I'm I'm from small towns as well, so it's a lot of rural areas. Yes, definitely, definitely. So, Benjamin, I just want to get right into it with you because you know you you love talking about games. I love talking about games, and you know I want to get to that for us. So, what is it that got you into developing and making games? And based on your experiences, is there something that you'd be able to, your advice that you'd be able to share? with those looking to also get into the industry? Yeah, so I can answer your first question in two parts. So sure. the first thing is, essentially as a kid, I was always, uh, I grew up in the, or I was born in the late 70s, so I grew up in the 80s, essentially, as a you know, kid and as a teen in the 90s. So as a kid, I was into games and playing things like in television and then eventually in NES and whatnot, but it was sort of that earlier generation that um, was my introduction, uh, as well as sort of like some computer games here and there. So a lot of it was just the novelty of of just technologically based games because it was such a new thing back then. Um, and I used to design games even when I was a kid, uh, though I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. So the family and television was my first console. And I, what I would do is create uh, these instruction manuals and sort of, sort of like almost like faux video game magazine um, write-ups, even though I didn't have access to game magazines at the time uh, for games that I was creating. And the one I always remember was this like junkyard brawler for the Intellivision. And I have this very vivid memory of designing like the sort of pixel art fence, which is why there's a pixel art fence at home. Uh, but all this these sort of like Intellivision uh, levels of detail for the background and how the character to work and how you animate and then creating the manual and um, coloring it in with crayons or uh, uh, colored pencil or, or whatnot and designing games on paper that way. So apparently I was into it uh, and I didn't realize it. And then what happened was I, would, I got to go to this extra class when I was in grade school um, for, I guess, just like overachieving kids just to keep them from annoying everyone. That's what I like to assume. And one of the things we did in that class was design a board game. Uh, and I worked with this guy named Tom, this other kid, who's a way better artist than I was. And we had so much fun designing this board game. And it was essentially the first time I got to practice game design. You know, what does it mean to design a paper board game, going around the board, how do pieces move, what are the rules, risk reward, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and again, it's something I didn't realize until much later I'd already sort of done uh, through this class, but that sort of gave me the bug. Um, and the first time I got to put my game design skills really into practice was creating levels in like Wolfenstein and Doom and things like that in the nineties once I was able to get a PC. And then in Toronto, about 2007 is when the kind of indie game boom started to happen. Um, a lot of that because of uh, things being made on console and PC and, and storefronts uh, sort of opening up. And as well as uh, the iPhone eventually happened, and that started to open up once the App Store launched in 2008. But also um, that was when development tools became a bit more democratized and available. So you, you had stencil and sketch and a bunch of other things and eventually for me it was you know game maker the earliest earlier versions of game maker 
so I got to sort of jump into making games as someone who didn't do anything like that technically uh, up until that point, as long as, as well as a bunch of other people did. You know, there's um, uh, sort of the people came before us, like uh, Jess Mack and MetaNet and other people, and people like Super Brothers, who was sort of in my quote unquote class, you know, of budding game designers. So that whole uh, mix of accessibility to software and community and um, a place to actually put your game, such as online, uh, meant that a whole bunch more people were trying it, including me. And that's kind of what kicked off me making stuff and eventually making Home, which became our first published game, and on it went from there. Awesome. And, you know, that's definitely a good thing to, to note that, you know, uh, that that really was the time of, of the boom, as you said, you know, all the all the software started coming out, you know, it was definitely a lot easier to get into, as opposed to using uh, level uh, the level editor systems for for doom or, you know, other things like that, where uh, things like hammer or what have you, they did exist, it was, I'm going to say easy -er, um in quotes, to develop levels or, or what have you. But it was easier in comparison to what it used to be, right? And then, you know, Home, for example, came out, you know, just around that that big boom when a bunch of other, you know, great indie games were really starting to explode. And yeah, it's great to hear that, you know, you found uh, the ability to uh, make use of the talents and make use of everything that you had wanted to to do and, you know, move forward with it i'm struggling to put that in the right way but i i hope it i hope what i'm saying makes sense and i apologize for the uh jumble of words there no totally uh totally can understand um it's uh it was one of those things where you don't quite realize it at the time but you get a little inkling that something special is happening and even though it's you know for other people this may not seem like that big of a deal uh, but for us it was like being in the middle of like the punk rock revolution or where suddenly things can happen, you know, within a matter of months, you realize, Oh my God, I'm meeting people from valve and they're like, Oh, can you please put your game on our store? Like just imagine that today for anyone who's listening to this, who is a game developer, imagine talking to valve and they're like, Oh yeah, please come to our store. We really like you to be on there and like meeting humans who run it, you know, absolutely insane by today's standards. But that was sort of the space that it was in. It was very, uh, a very, uh, early days, but it was so great because we just things just sped up so fast. And if you were if you had the time and the inkling and uh, like a computer <laughs> that could sort of run the software to to get stuff done, there was opportunities. And and that happened as well with getting on the PlayStation and everything else. It was just sort of right place at the right time. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, and you know there is something I want to touch on there for for those that are unaware because you know this was only quote-unquote, 10 or so years ago now. But um, at the beginning, Valve didn't really, or Steam, didn't really have an easy way to get on. There was Greenlight. Uh, before that, there was the incredibly secretive system where you had to have a publisher, and even then, that was very convoluted from what I was able to gather over the years. Um, having them come to you and ask you to come to their platform is is incredibly wild because before that the indie game scene did sort of exist but it was a lot harder to get through because you know um and by all means correct me if i'm wrong but a lot of it was having to set up like a, a paypal or or through other payment processing means years and years and years ago which were um 
somewhat terrifying in today's standard of security. Right. And like you, you had to, you just had to hope that someone found you. Like, um, um, I think it was space zombies and pirates. One, for example, was a pre pre steam game. Um, Aquarius, I believe. I, I think that's the right name. Gish, I think was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, all of those games, you just, you kind of had to hope that, you know, PC gamer wrote a small blurb on you and that someone would then navigate to your website and thrust whatever payment processor implementation you chose to use or PayPal or what have you. So, you know, you're, you're, I think you're spot on with, there was, you know, you were kind of there for like the punk rock phase where, you know, steam was just starting up coming to you and going to other people. And it was just uh, the small boom was starting like, you know, the, I almost want to say like the calm before the storm, because now it's, it's, you know, it's seemingly open, um, you know, open waters and it's just come on in. Right. But back then that was, that was something. And being at the beginning of it is something special. If, if I'm understanding correctly, or if I have understood a lot of things correctly. No, no, you're absolutely right. And so we, you know, Home originally launched pre-Steam. It launched uh, in June 2012. And then June, yeah, that's right. June, I think it was June 1st, 2012. And then launched on Steam in August. So in between there, there was a, a visit by Valve and then we got sort of sorted. And I had to do exactly that. We, we, had, we had lucked out with some press several months before the launch and just um, we, uh, Joystick, which no longer exists, the website Joystick, uh, gave us a really big press push because of, an IGF trailer we submitted that October, the, the previous October in 2011. And essentially during that entire um, bit from 2011 to launch in June, it was like, oh, I guess I actually have to make this game now. It's not just a bunch of BS in a trailer because uh, <laughs> people are paying attention. And I actually, uh, I signed on to a, a system. I don't even remember the name of it, but it was this very small company somewhere in the States uh, that essentially ran a you know digital download fulfillment system where it was a way to automate uh, somebody getting access to uh, my set of you know like Windows files for home uh, but getting so with a unique download code so it couldn't just be pirated and passed around willy-nilly it wasn't just like an open download and one that had a fulfillment email so they could contact me for support like all that stuff that you take for granted with with steam or anything else um and we had to do the whole thing i remember speaking to the people i can't remember what her name was but there was this one agent that i spoke to and she was essentially the person who helped me out when i had issues <laughs> when there were like download problems or somebody had some technical issue or something else i couldn't figure out and it was all manual you know we shipped all these boxes that we built for the uh, game the original physical version of the game shipped them all out by hand from our living room and dealt with this whole thing essentially manually you know installed whatever backend php backend we needed i can't even remember at this point uh and it was it sounds absolutely insane nowadays as opposed to saying like oh yeah just you know putting the game up on eShop or whatever uh or, or up on steam or on itch.io uh but that was sort of the uh that was sort of the wild west at the time but it was great because it taught you how to deal with um, everything you have to do when you sell games and uh, and sort of market games to people, including the back end and customer customer support and all that. And so I'd like to actually use that as a way to answer the second part of your question, which was about advice. Um, 
And there's essentially two pieces of advice I could give someone who's maybe thinking about getting into games, listening to this, or is maybe trying to work on something and wants to know what to do. The first is uh, you have to make something s- super small, and then you have to make like a hundred of those super small things. Uh, I so I taught game design classes and other and other classes for about thirteen years at a university. Um, so this is something I told my students a lot, and the way I say it is, making games is like uh, running a quest in an RPG. If you don't turn the quest in, you don't get the experience. And but what I mean by that is, if you don't finish a project, you don't actually learn everything you need to know and get the proper XP to sort of move on and start something new. So if you just start a game or have these like gigantic ambitions, ambitions for like, oh, I'm going to make this like 100-hour roguelike online multiplayer, whatever, you're probably never going to finish it. And you're not going to learn everything you need to learn to make a game. You need to make a game that takes like one minute to play from beginning to end and get to learn that experience. Because uh, that teaches you not just about making a game or design or art or music or anything like that. It teaches you about um, designing interactions with that another human being is going to have. That's like, you know, user experience design. So what, what happens when a game boots up? And what, what do you see? Is there a title screen? Is there a credit screen? Is there an opening cutscene? Is there something that has to be in there to explain to people what's going on? You know, what does the main gameplay look like? What happens if you win or lose or however your game is structured? Is how do you exit from that game? Is that got a menu? Is is that something where you just have to play it till the end and then you get some sort of outro and then the game ends? All of those things are important in games and not just the you know gigantic spreadsheet and pieces of paper with really cool designs on them. So if you are right now listening to this, trying to make something, take whatever you have in your head, whatever concept you may be writing down or, or sketching out and reduce that to 25% whatever that idea is make just that 25 percent, and if you can do that then you can worry about making a game that's a little bit bigger next time but you got to do that a whole lot and you know i i love the i love the way you you framed that advice because you you gamified it you gamified the 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 you know the whole process and you know that's that's a really interesting way to do it and thank you for that advice because you know that's something i hear um here often and i'm not trying to say that diminishes what you've said it's just reinforces what is said and shared and you know i just i like i said i just absolutely love the way you you framed it all up so thank you for that right on so i'm gonna go off a little off a little bit of the scripts because there you know when we initially started discussing this there was some things that you had kind of wanted to talk about or at least the 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 pitch that you put out to Twitter asking to talk about. So as someone that has made a comic for for Worse Than Death, as I if I understand correctly, the the, the lead in or the prequel, if you will. Uh, uh sequel. It's actually sequel. a follow up. Oh, awesome. Okay. So sorry that was on me for misunderstanding that. Um, you know, I'm going to assume that you are someone that enjoys comics and such. So has there been a way or has there been any comics that have kind of influenced the way that you approach game design or the ideas that you have and how you want to present them? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. I could talk about comics forever, probably even more than games. Uh, um, manga in particular, so Japanese comics in particular influence everything we do. Um, both with my wife and I, the way we approach games, we're both, I mean, that's how we met was in college uh, bonding over comics and, and manga and whatnot. So uh, we both take a lot of our, a lot of our 
sort of cultural and design references for things like manga because manga is such a mature medium, uh, more so than North American comics uh, in a way because there is a richer variety of content in manga than there is in say like traditional you know American superhero comics. Um, but there's also a lot of variety and really cool uh, other kinds of lessons in uh, like European comics in particular. But with manga, because there is just this huge amount of content in every genre you could possibly imagine, you know, sports, romance, every mixture of all that stuff. If there's something you're looking for in terms of like, uh, say, pacing, tone, uh, even setting, like I doubt you could not find a manga that has something that you think about, you know? Uh, and what we found really helpful is like, I read a ton of manga, especially now because um, uh, the Toronto Public Library has so much of it that I can just get almost everything I'm looking for. Um, but what I use it for is just look and see how uh, these artists structure their stories about particular kinds of topics. So if something is like a horror manga, which I, I like to read, there are uh, manga that's very fantasy based, like maybe a bit more quote unquote light in that it's not uh, like overly grotesque or horrific other stuff that is meant to be extremely shocking or, and, and much more gross other stuff is more psychological etc and what i find really helpful with that is to help me break out of um break out of my own assumptions when it comes to designing a game because i often think of uh, when we often think of designing games you just naturally think of other games in a similar genre or style you know i was joking with a friend the other day that uh, horror games are very frustrating to me because most uh, especially on the indie side, most developers just essentially try to remake the same two to three games over and over again. You know, they're making like a bad version of Silent Hill or a bad version of Resident Evil or, you know, some sort of pastiche in there. And they ignore all this other stuff in the horror genre that exists, including other games that aren't strictly horror, but have really cool elements that can be used as such. Uh, people always talk about like Majora's Mask being a game that is very like weird and unsettling and interesting because it has the pressure of time. Like, that to me is, is kind of like a horror game. So uh, manga is really great for that because uh, you can sort of see right in front of you and very visually uh, this huge gamut of versions of ideas. And then when we sit down to work on games, we will basically just like reference books and be like, okay, let's read this. Let's read this like pitch line for this manga and see if that gets us close to the tone. If that sounds like the tone for the game we want to make. Uh, and we'll often do that and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, just as an example, this isn't real, but, um, you know, like the pitch for this new Junji Ito uh, manga, who's uh, Junji Ito is a very famous horror manga artist. And it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like we want, like, there's some cosmic horror and something that's really all about, like, the degradation of humanity, you know, whatever. That sounds like the thing I want to make. Uh, or something that's more lighthearted or comedic or whatnot. And we use those to say, like, oh, if you were to pitch me, like if Nancy was to pitch me this game using this um, uh, this uh, pitch paragraph, what would I think about that? And if we go, oh yeah, that sounds great, then we go, okay, we kind of have an idea about what kind of game we think we want to make or you know, what kind of game that would be. So that's one uh, very verbose way to explain how comics and manga help us make the games that we do. And you know, that's great to hear. And like, I didn't, I didn't consider it until you actually said it. But, you know, outside of, outside of, you know, the, the mains, so there's like, you know, Image, uh, Boom, Marvel, DC, what have you, and then the, the handful of 
smaller indie ones. Well, IDW, I don't think is so much indie anymore. But, you know, there really isn't a lot in terms of comics in North America, Western at least, in comparison to the way that Japan does it with manga, where there's, you know, there's um, several weekly series, several monthly series, and then you have, you know, several different publications by several different companies, all of them ranging the gambit from, you know, uh, very generalistic children's stories, if I may put it that way as an easy sweep, uh, all the way up to you know, highly specific topics or uh, genres or what have you. And some of them like even specialize where you even have some authors, um, a name I cannot remember right now, who only produce the same story, so to say, or at least the same framing, so to say, every time. Uh, for for example, um, the author I'm thinking of has been doing uh, a baseball series. Oh, Mitsuru Dachi. Uh, probably. Um, but has been doing a baseball series, uh, you, you, like individual ones, for, I want to say, 30 to near 40 years, almost as, like maybe even longer than I've been alive. And every time, you know, it starts off with people wanting to go to Koshin. Yeah, um, that, for, totally right. Yeah. Uh, and for those that aren't aware, Koshin is a, a, a stadium for, um, I believe it's specifically or at least um, colloquially uh, seen as a stadium that is used for effectively high school baseball tournaments like the, the, yeah the... koshien is the high school is like the national high school tournament it's actually going on yeah, right now and uh or maybe it just finished but like it, things are on right now and it's the, like the biggest the biggest thing in the country exactly exactly and like all of his stories start you know at the beginning of a school year or what have you and typically end with that and for the last you know like 30 40 years he has just been writing different variations of just that and i think um you know a few have been animated my personal favorite was cross game but like even with even when you have those highly specific genres and specialized series or what have you there you know what i just said you know it's it's a very broad stroke to say what it is but you know for example with cross game that isn't so much about baseball as it is the relationship between um effectively a surrogate child um and i say that just because he spends so much time with the the the, with the family and then one family and their way of processing and grieving loss and a loss that happened if i'm not mistaken like 10 years prior to the main part the main uh, flesh and bone of the story but you know it wasn't until you mentioned that you know the, the the stark difference that i realized that that really is the case and being able to you know, pull from or being able to look and see what kind of little inspirations you can take from um, is a wild thing. And I don't think that's something that is as done in Western games as it would be in, say, uh, like a, a Japanese RPG or what have you. Uh, you know, for example, the entire the entirety of uh, From Software's borderline entire library is is basically pulled from from berserk um right admittedly so to to a lot of it as well from uh the the head of the dark souls or the you know a lot of the the from guy or what have you for for their not armored core series but you know it's it's great to hear that 
I, I know I'm off on a little bit of rambling tangent. I'm going to try and pull it back, but it's great to hear that that's the, the, the way you kind of go about it because I, I love the idea of seeing more um, non-standard Western tropes or non-standard Western topics being used to influence a Western product, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Yep, totally. And, you know, while we're on that topic, um, you know, because you said you you love it and it sounds like you are very passionate about, you know, the, the genre, the umbrella term genre there. Uh, are there any ma manga that you would that you'd like to recommend, especially since you've been reading a lot of it? Um, well, is there any that you'd like to recommend? Maybe like, you know, a, a, a small selection of different genres and your picks sure. from those genres? Sure. So you mentioned Mitsuru Dachi's Cross Game, which is the only one of his series, I think, that's been officially translated as a manga into English. Um, but as you said, he's been publishing uh, sports series and baseball sp specific stuff since the 80s. And his first one is called Touch, which is basically like a national treasure in Japan. It's this, they have McDonald's campaigns uh, that use the nostalgia for that manga and their anime um, to sell chicken burgers, because that's how <laughs> big of a deal it is. Uh, that just happened a couple months ago, I think. Um, but anyway, so officially or not, you got to read the 80s, 80s manga touch. It's the greatest thing of all time. Um, there's another big mangaka whose name is uh, uh, Noki Urasawa, who's like a legend. And he's made things like 20th Century Boys, Monster. Uh, I could go on tons of series. Uh, he's got he's got a book out right now called Asadora. Uh, it's I think there are two uh, books, two volumes are out now in English, and the third one's coming soon. Um, and it's about this uh, little girl who survives a sort of natural disaster uh, just after World War II, and then she sort of grows up to become a pilot. Um, and it's just essentially about her. And it's hard to explain because there are other things that I don't want to ruin, but um, it's fantastic. Uh, and everything that guy touches is solid gold because he is so good. Uh, like any book he makes, it's like 10 out of 10. So just if you have access to a library or bookstore, just pick up anything, you won't be disappointed. Um, and I can, oh God, I could go on and on, but manga, because it's so good. Uh, one of the best things for, or one of the best series I've been reading lately, which is another old series, because I prefer older stuff, um, is Rumiko Takahashi's uh, Urusei Yatsura, which is from the 80s, or sorry, yeah, early 80s. Um, people may know as the main character, Lum, who's like the girl with the green hair and the tiger striped bikini. Uh, there's an anime that got, did get released, I think, in English. Um, and I've been actually reading all the recollected books of that lately, because even though she she's the creator of like Ranma One Half, Inuyasha, uh, she's got a new series out now, and she's one of the most popular mangaka of all time, uh, and one of the few who has managed to essentially cross like all genres, all major genres of mangaka, and kind of be like in the top three of all of them. Um, but what's great about her is that her old stuff, like the Ursa Yasura stuff, is comedic and for me it's like a lesson in how to draw comics because i get so hung up on certain things and i don't pick up bad lessons or just uh, um, sustain bad habits from my own uh, drawing and i just always pick up one of her books to go okay here's here's a great way to like draw something intelligently and simply you know with just the amount of lines you need and exactly the expressions you need to to kind of keep things moving so she's like a complete master in that so i could be here for 20 minutes just talking about manga recommendations so i'll leave it at those three well thank you for those recommendations and you know 
Uh, there is some I want to mention about about Rumiko, and you know, you kind of touched on it, and like her style is is very much iconic, similar to the um to the to the author of Touch. Uh, you know, it's you you see them and you instantly know. Oh, okay, I know who who's done this, even if you don't know the name. Um, but one thing I want to touch on for for Rumiko is you you're spot on in that you know it's it's very you know straightforward. But and I don't I don't know if this is just I don't know how how much this holds up. But this is my opinion of it. But she did a she has always done a very fantastic job at physical comedy in a drawn form like everything is always incredibly expressive everything you know is is communicating exactly what you need to do um and i just wanted to mention that you know there really isn't anything else i can can say about you know her work outside of you know my opinion that you know outside of her being like around and iconic is that you know the her her physical comedy style has always been something that that i've enjoyed Absolutely. Yeah, she's a legend. She's one of those people, if I got to meet, I would just pass out because she's so amazing. Yes, yeah, she's, you're right. You're absolutely a legend. And, you know, rightfully so, especially, um, you know, uh, uh, given that, you know, she is a woman author, uh, has uh, came around at the time in, in manga where uh, women were, well, not only women authors themselves um, being not as popular, but as well, she wrote, comics that had female leads at a time where female leads were or sorry sorry not even female leads um where a female that was in any way sub, you know in any way shape or form in a quote-unquote lead role would have been a supporting actress or not actress but a supporting role for like right. the main character whether it be like the sister the bro, uh, the mother or the what have you right um and you know from from day one with i i forget uh, the original the mermaid series that she's oh yeah uh, mermaid saga is thank you that is which is a horror story and that's just fantastic i'm reading through that now or sorry Uh, i read through that yeah and like i i flipped through it before and it's something i do want to get to i didn't quite realize it was horror so thank you for that that will make it easier for me to pitch to to my girlfriend uh and also be able to read it easily um for both of us to enjoy if you will but you know it's it's great that she has continued to see large success with several animated series and whatnot, um, despite, I shouldn't say despite, um, but considering that a lot of her stuff came in the, the 80s when a female lead, a strong female lead at that, was not um, common or as re- uh, received, well-received, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a whole other topic. Uh, I just wanted to add my my two cents on that one before before we move on and i i ask you some more about video games let's do it so um benjamin uh i'm gonna go back a little and you know like you said you you would have been in the 80s for this one so um the the selection might be a little smaller so um when i say this feel free to have a bit of range on it but what was your favorite game as a child and or in your youth and and why so Okay, I'm going to go in by eras here. My sure. earliest favorite childhood game uh, is the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons game on Intellivision. Um, you can't get it as that anymore because the license ran out like a, decades ago. Uh, so if it's ever, uh, if you ever see it in a, you know, Intellivision collection or whatnot, it's called Crown of Kings now. Uh, and for me, that was the first horror game that I ever played. 
Um, and if you ever see it or if people listening want to look it up on YouTube, um, essentially it has two phases. It's brilliant. It's, it's essentially a roguelike uh, where you um, start at the beginning, uh, the like left edge of this map, and your goal is to get to this sort of like misty mountain on the other side. It's all very like prototypical sort of 70s style fantasy at that point. And you need to collect items such as a key to unlock a gate or perhaps a boat that lets you cross a river, whatnot. Um, but you need to find the three pieces of the crown and reassemble them at the Misty Mountain and defeat the final evil dragon to win the game. But every time you load it up, it auto-generates the map. Um, and it so it changes the actual map design. And these little hills are generated, which can have, I think, one of three difficulty uh, settings on them, like sort of easy, medium, hard. And the maps themselves within each of these uh, hills, which are essentially like these little cavern systems, um, are also auto-generated uh, and random every single playthrough. So it is a game that you can play infinitely, uh, which is amazing. But what makes it so special is once you go into a hill, you get this uh, view where, again, if someone's looking up, you'll see essentially like a green screen and the um, uh, caves represented by sort of like a pale yellow um, series of hexagonal or oct octagonal rooms connected by these thin passageways. And you are like the little dude, the archer, who's trying to go through. What it does, and again, still still amazing for the time, which is probably like what, 82, 83, but uh, um, it uses sound to essentially telegraph what's going on. So I don't know how they generate the maps. Like, I would love to get a postmortem on this, like how they figure out where enemies are going to be, but you essentially don't see uh, a room until you enter it. So you, you're in this one area, you say, say it branches off four different ways, you choose the left way. As you're walking down the left passageway, it's sort of like filling it out. And then once you sort of get far enough, it then fills out the next room. But what makes it cool is you will hear sound cues such as uh, bats, snakes, um, and in particular, a dragon, and there are different kinds of dragons. And it is absolutely terrifying because I remember just being scared um, witless while going down a passageway, knowing I needed X, like whatever it was. It was an item I needed, I was looking for. Only have a couple of arrows left. Um, and you start to hear that sort of like roar of a dragon. And it kind of sounds like, kind of sounds like a cat purring, but uh, then it gets a little louder depending on how close you are to the passage. And then if you sort of just reveal the passage by stepping far enough into it, you know, say the dragon appears and it makes just awful, terrifying sound and it goes right for you. And it is awesome. You're just running for your life. You're trying to get far enough away so it stops following you. Like it's got this entire sort of chase system. It's incredible. Uh, and a lot of what I wanted to do with say Worse Than Death, which is a horror game that uses sound and enemies that chase you and all that kind of stuff, essentially came from first playing this game back in the early 80s. And, you know, everything you've said about that game has it has me sold on it you know if you if you pitch this game today i you know i don't think it would anyone would bat an eye at the premise of it and i don't mean that in a negative way i mean you know with the 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 current landscape if you will or the rise of roguelikes i think you know if, if that game were pitched today most people would go oh yeah that sounds great but back as far back as you know in television um, in you know the 80s that that sounds like an absolutely wild premise and you're right everything that you've said that it does um, even down to the the procedural generation that sounds like a wonder to know that it existed back then you know 
Yep, absolutely. It's it still amazes me what that game did and how simple it is and how wonderful it is. It sort of is something I go back to when I think about game design uh, quite a bit. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, and you said you were going to break it down by by um uh, I forget the exact word you used, but um chunks of age yeah. or what have you. Yeah. So if I go to like NES era, I'm trying to think childhood favorite game. It's weird because there were games that I only ended up loving later, but that planted a seed in my brain when I was that age. Uh, and two of those were Castlevania uh, to Simon's Quest and Metroid. I remember renting Metroid and just being completely confounded, not having any idea what I was doing and not finding it terribly fun because I really was totally clueless. Uh, and then, of course, falling in love with sort of Metroid um, later on. But that was sort of the one where I was like, there's something about this I love but I don't know what that is yet because I'm kind of I'm kind of lost and confused. And similarly, Castlevania II Simon's Quest is one of those games where uh, it actually influences the games we have made so far in silly little ways because I just, I just love that game so much. A lot of people don't, but um, the way it sort of depicted the sort of uh, the, um, the kind of mountainside and the backgrounds and just the night and day system. When I played that first, I was actually a little bit older living in a country, uh, the country, like in a very tiny town. And something about that game just really, really spoke to me. So I'm going to, I'm just, I'll stop there. Cause otherwise I'll just list a bunch of games, which is cheating the question, but let's just say Metroid cast me too. Those aren't even the games I played the most. It's so funny. Those are like the games I didn't even play till later, but those are the ones that the correct answer is super Mario Brothers too, but still. <laughs> Well, you know, that's very fair. And I wouldn't feel too bad about, you know, wanting to break it down. I don't I don't think it's really cheating the question because, you know, the question is meant to be open ended. And, you know, how if the way you want to interpret it is by giving, you know, a, a, a by genre or by era breakdown, I'm not going to be upset with that. However, um, you know, if you want to you want to leave it there, we can definitely move on. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll just tell you like 20 favorite games <laughs> over and over and over again. Fair enough. So, um. What is it, Benjamin, that makes games enjoyable to you? And now you you kind of, I think you kind of danced around it or have, you know, kind of been in the realm of answering that question um, implicitly, but explicitly, what is it about games that, you know, you enjoy, like the games that you do enjoy, what makes them enjoyable? Oh, that's a very good question, because I actually think about this in the opposite terms. I think about all the things I don't like doing in games. Now that I'm like a middle-aged man, uh and my time is precious i tend to think about games that i want to play by going what don't i want to spend my time doing and then then the list gets longer and longer as i get older you know it's like i don't want to run around an open world and be bored for hours like i don't want to mess with skill trees that's boring like i don't you know it it goes on and on and on and my wife always laughs at me because she's like so what do you want to do in games the answer is like i want to i want to feel things and i want things to scare me. Those are the two major things. So basically, if any game has like a dating system or a horror element, uh, I'm interested, interest, I'm sorry, instantly interested because those are emotional connections. So I'm interested in games that provide uh, um, uh, emotional human-based connection. A lot of people like games because they like to, you know, um, manipulate stats or play around with settings and, uh, you know, ship simulators stuff like that which i totally get but that's just not how my brain works my brain is all about like feelings <laughs> feelings and colors because i'm like it's just a total artist so if a game sort of presents 
uh, for instance, if a game presents a trailer, it's like really beautiful, gorgeous art style, regardless of what the budget or art style is. Uh, and it's sort of aesthetically appealing to me, I'll be very excited. But then as soon as someone starts mentioning like, oh, you're going to level up things or you're going to manage something or someone mentions the word crafting or resources, then I instantly tune out. But if someone just slips in a line about like, make time for your friends, like go on dates, uh, you know, increase relationship stats, then I'm like, oh, excuse me, I'm very interested in this. So the games I generally want to play um, are the ones that have a story to tell me. Like they, they have something they want to say and they don't want to spend generally 90 hours doing it. Uh, they have something to say. And if that's over a weekend, that sounds even better. Like that's what I would prefer. Um, so that thing that they might want to say will be like an example of uh, Old Man's Journey, one of my favorite games from the past uh, few years, which is like a 45-minute game that left me crying at the end because it was so so tragic and, and wonderful. Uh, that game has a very, very simple set of mechanics, and a, but a very nice art style, beautiful look to it, intelligently designed. And what you do is so simple, but it's engaging enough because you're, you're, um, the sort of carrot on the stick for you as a player is, well, I'm invested in who this old man is, and I want to find out where he's going and why, because it sounds like he's on a mission and is important. And, you know, the the goal of the game essentially is reveal the story to figure out what's going on, and which all leads up to this amazing payoff at the end. And most games are don't really do that so much anymore. Um, most games have a lot of competing elements, and this is a thing that gets talked about in design uh, talks all the time, where... Essentially, you have like multiple uh, sort of bosses of this particular game where, you know, one major element is like a progression system. One element is maybe a monetization system. One element is a connection to multiplayer. One element is this other stuff. And all these things are competing for your time within the game itself and quite literally competing for your time where you don't even know what to do because you have all these things sort of pushing you forward or, or pulling at you. So I tend to look for games that have one thing to say. They say like, I want you to you know, walk through this spooky forest and try not to pee your pants with all the spooky stuff that's going to happen. And we're going to tell you a creepy story along the way. That sounds great. Uh, but as soon as it has all these bullet points and all these other checklists, that's when I tend to go, oh, I can't do it. My brain, that's, it's too old. I don't have time for this. <laughs> you know, I I can definitely appreciate the the sentiment that you you basically, you know, explained or wrapped around there um because yeah that is a very a poignant thing to 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 have because you know as you get older your time gets more valuable and you you want to you want to kind of focus it right now i'm just going to make this one comment before going on because i i want to carry on or i want to get on to the the next part of what i want to say to you um but that is a very very weird set of venn diagrams uh, horror with dating sim. That's I just want to point that out there, and it leads perfectly into this. Um, have you played the Dread X Collection too? No, I have there, not. There is, there is a. Well, I'll explain this first. I'll give you the premise. It'll make far more sense. I promise. Um, so the Dread X Collections. Um, it's uh, done by Dread XP or the the publisher or what have you. It is a bunch of horror or suspense thriller kind of games. Um, and they're all little mini or micro games. Some of them range, I think, uh, as short as 
15, 20 minutes. Some of them can last a couple of hours. Um, and they're, you know, they're relatively inexpensive. I think $10 each um, or up to $10 each Canadian. I want to put that asterisk on there since we are Canadian. Um, but in DreadX Collection 2 especially, there is a mini game where the entire purpose is dating, um, I, I believe it was Cthulhu, but it's dating a um, female representing Cthulhu and it's trying to woo her over as she encourages you to complete the um uh the 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 ritual to end the world effectively um so it's it's, 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 and it is relatively short in terms of um visual novel dating sim what have you uh but um since you you are a fan of horror, I would I would recommend you take a, a look at the Dread XP games. So you know Dread X Collection, Collection Two. Um, um, there's a few others that I'm just not remembering the name. But I think there's a Dread X Collection Three as well. Uh, but there's there's a, there's a handful of them, and they're also cool. producing more games. But Dread X Collection Two, especially, if only because it has what I think you are perfectly in the center of the Venn diagram of the the one mini game. Nice. Sounds great. Uh, I appreciate um, that. Yeah, no, you're very welcome. Um I I'm not going to lie, when I've pitched DreadX collection to people before, I have never had the opportunity to pitch that specific game as one that I think would be square in the center of what they wanted. That one is more of a thing I would throw out there. Oh yeah, you can also do this and it's amusing and you know, people laugh at it because it's you know just the concepts amusing. However, I just thank you for for giving me the opportunity to to pin you directly in the middle of both of those Venn diagram circles or nice. the circles on that diagram. Perfect. Perfect. Sounds like the game exactly tuned to my interests. I fingers crossed that it is something that you'll look into and enjoy uh, and not not enjoy because I don't I don't like the idea of giving bad suggestions to people. So, Benjamin, I don't want to take up much more of your time. However, I do have one more question for you. And, you know, it's it's kind of vague and it's and I apologize. It's vague because I struggle to explain it. So by all means, if it doesn't make sense to you, let me know and I'll take a better swing at it. But. Is there a game that you have that you would consider like your, your best comfort game? And I mean that in the sense of a game that if you were to walk away tonight and, you know, throw it up on the Nintendo or on the PlayStation or what have you, and you started it up. Is there a game that you have that would make you immediately remember the feelings that you had when you first played it? Like that, that enjoyment, that awe, what have you? Like, is there a game that does that for you? And if you, if there is, do you mind talking about it a little or sharing that with me or us? Oh, oh yeah. I have, I have several that are sort of my absolute comfort food games. I think I tweeted about this like a, a month and a half ago, like four games that I can play anytime and just feel, uh, feel great about, um, so if it's okay with you, I'll mention all four. Yeah, go for it. So number one is Super Mario Brothers 2, uh, which is my favorite Mario game. That's just my favorite uh, comfort food game. I uh, like to speed run it when, just whenever, you know, like just try to blaze through it in 30 minutes or something like that. Or 20, I think I got it down to 17 or 20. I can't remember. Um, uh, that's a game that I love and I've played, uh, I've played so many times. And there's a huge, multiple reasons why I love it. Some nostalgia, some sort of like family uh uh, family ties and, and, and whatnot. The second one is, uh, well, this is tough, but I would say 
it's tough between one and two, but I'm gonna say the original Mortal Kombat is one of my favorite comfort food games. I could play that game every single day of my life and never, <laughs> never get tired of it. I like MK1 and 2 uh, nearly equally, but there's something about the first one with its um, sort of like uh, 80 or sorry, it's like pseudo 60 Shaw Brothers aesthetic that I really find, um, I really find quite endearing. And I'm one of those lunatics who has like a rare Sega CD console just so I can play Sega CD Mortal Kombat on it, essentially. And that's the thing that uh, I can duck into anytime I want. Um, the next one is Street Fighter 2, but specifically, I've come to love the Genesis version of Street Fighter 2. It's my favorite one, Street Fighter 2 Special Championship Edition. Uh, that's a comfort food game because I play again. If Nancy, my wife, sees me playing that, she's like, "Really, you're playing Street Fighter Two again?" I probably bought a version of Street Fighter Two like 25 times in my life, you know, some variation on one console or another. Uh, and specifically, the sort of Turbo or Special Championship Edition that to me is peak Street Fighter. And that's another thing where uh, if I just get that get that hankering, I put that game in and I can just play that. Everything's great. Um, and it's tough to pick for the fourth one because I don't remember what I tweeted, but I'm just going to say, uh, I'm going to say Super Castlevania 4, um, because that is a game that I love so much, despite only ever beating it maybe twice, maybe, if that, um, because of the music and I have all these memories, uh, of, playing it as like a rental on my birthday and then eventually getting my own Super NES and trying to get a copy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that is one of those comfort food games where as soon as I put it on, I'm like, oh, this game is to me is like perfect. I just love everything about it. And if someone was like, hey, do you want to play Super Castlevania 4? There is not a single moment in my entire life unless I had to like run into an operating room or something that I would say, no, absolutely not. So that's why that is one of my comfort food games. And, you know, thank you so much for, for sharing those. And I, there's something I just want to, I want to quickly comment on, uh, because I've experienced it numerous times. Um, but it's, you know, what you said is, you know, Nancy will see you playing street fighter two and, you know, have the expression of really, you know, um, I, I absolutely love you for sharing that. Uh, and I love the idea of that because for me, it's, I, uh, my, my girlfriend says that to me. But it's usually when she sees me playing games that she doesn't understand. Um, right. Like she can't she can't functionally understand the concept of or why I'm still doing it. Uh, for example, um, I forget the name of it right now and I, I really upset about that. But it's um it's a it's a it's a game where you are effectively on a pseudo um, Windows screen or what have you, and you're navigating the screen and like your inventory is a window pop up. And your, you know, your all your things are separate window pop-ups, and you're you're playing effectively a roguelike RPG. I know the game you're talking about, and I also can't remember the name. Um, and it really bothers me because I I've sunk so many hours into it, and you know I just I love that it's a shared, um, a shared experience that people can have where they have like their significant other or what have you look at you and be like really that again, um, whether it's because they they just are tired of seeing you play it or that they don't understand why you enjoy it so much but thank you for sharing you know all four of those games but that one especially spoke to me because it's um it's it's something that i've experienced numerous times and it's always fun 
to watch the other person have to be like, really? Again? You still? Yep. It's like when my wife sees me watching uh, the 1989 Batman movie for the 50th time. It's like every version that comes out, I'll buy it because I'm going to keep watching it till the day I die. <laughs> or The Shining. You know, there is much to say about Tim Burton's Batman. Um, the thing that always sticks out to me is, one, the fact that the, the suit doesn't have nipples. Um, yeah. But also uh, the scene where Batman just kicks a grenade back into the whatever with someone. Um, oh, that's it. Yeah, that's in Batman Returns. Oh, he, sorry. So that's a sequel. He kills one of the uh, kills one of the penguins uh, henchmen. Just like doesn't give a. Sh <laughs> um, so yeah, my mistake there, but you know it's still a Tim Burton one. So I I I can share your love of the Tim Burton Batman movies, if only because of how unique they were in their approach. Um, whether or not that unique today would be considered, um or that statement would be actually considered unique or not, seeing as Batman has undergone so many different things with, you know, what have you and, and such. But anyway. Now, Benjamin, like I said, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but if you'll permit me, if you have a few more minutes, there's just something I wanted to, to ask about, and it's something you tweeted about just before we started. Uh, is yep. that good? Of course. Awesome. So as someone that doesn't seem to talk to a lot of people that actively mention ActRaiser or seem excited about the premise of ActRaiser, you know, because it's a, a very cult classic kind of game where it was half um, uh, dungeon, you know, side scroll dungeon, what have you, and half city builder or sim. Um, are you excited to know that just, you know, an hour before we started recording, a remaster of that first game was announced? Oh, absolutely. And like, what a what a random surprise. I was on the couch watching the um, the direct with uh, Nancy and she was laughing at me because I was just like on my feet, like what act razor? You know, I saw the whatever the first couple frames of that teaser and I knew what it was and went, are you kidding me? Uh, it's one of those games you assume no one would ever do anything with again because it's just that good and unique. And to see that there's a remaster with, with more music and remastered stuff being done by uh, Yuzo Koshiro's original composers, just incredible. Yeah, I played that game first around launch time on Super NES because it was such an early title. And that was one of the games that just sort of made the system seem like, you know, this mind-blowing new piece of technology, especially with the soundtrack. And it's just something that has gotten, it's been completely forgotten over the years. Uh, but it's one of those games where, much like with a lot of uh, indie games that come out today, you know, combines two things. I mean, you know, like horror, horror and dating sims. This combines side-scrolling sword action with town builder. Like what? You know, and then there's this whole um, sort of like pseudo-religious theme to it. It's very bizarre, but I'm so glad that's come back. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I thank you for sharing how you reacted to it because that was a very similar thing to me. Like when it popped up with that, with like the, the beginning teaser part, um, you know, I immediately went to ActRaiser in, in utter confusion, not because, you know, I was disappointed in that, but just, I think, similar to you in that, you know, ActRaiser, like, really? Like, that's that's what they're doing? And, you know, my girlfriend sitting next to me had the reaction of, you know, not understanding at all. And, you know, in that brief, like, three seconds before it bounced into it, I had to immediately try and explain, oh, no, it's a cult classic, all this stuff. And then as everything's happening on the screen, to her utter confusement, 
um, confusion because, you know, it's, you know, the way they're presenting it, having to explain, okay, well, it's, you know, how it all works and how, how everything is with it. But I'm thankful that you tweeted that just because it's rare that I speak to anyone that actively talks about ActRaiser. And like I said, I know it's a cult classic. I know there's probably hundreds of thousands of people that have played it or remember it fondly. But, you know, like I said, it's, it's one of those series that's just long forgotten and it's rare that you get a chance to even comment that it exists if that makes any sense so thank you yep absolutely now benjamin as i've said a few times now i don't want to take up any more of your time however if there was anything else you want to discuss a cool game what you're doing something you feel more people should be aware of you know the floor is yours as well please let everyone know where they can find more information about you uh, which i will also be including in the episode description of course Sure. Well, I can't tell you what we're working on game-wise, but we, of course, have a couple couple things going on. One thing we will be talking about for quite a while and something else I hope we'll be talking about very soon. Um, but in other regards, uh, as we mentioned before, I've been working on the official comic book sequel to Worse Than Death, and that's kind of been my evening and weekends baby as I work through that. So uh, we actually launched the first volume. This is a 72-page book that got launched at TCAP, the Toronto Comics Arts Festival, uh, this past spring. Uh, originally, it was an ex- sort of exclusive there. Um, and then people just kept asking about it, and stores seemed to like it. So I've been recently speaking to retailers in, in other cities um, and, and been shipping out copies to um, uh, like those, those shops, comic shops in UK. Uh, it's going to be one in the States and uh, a few more in Canada. So... Hopefully well, that'll see a wider release very soon. Um, we'll get get it uh, get that into other shops. But um, if anyone's curious about checking out that the game Worse Than Death or other games, or of course the comic book, easiest way you can do is go to my Linktree. It's got everything, including the Bansico website linked from there. Uh, and you can just go to linktree.com slash Benjamin Rivers. Awesome. And thank you so much to, to share that. And now I, I do apologize. I didn't I didn't really spend a lot of time talking about your games, and that's that's on me. However, I did want to say, you know, I am, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're still working on things and that there's something that you have in the works that you are able to share coming up because around the boom or the, the beginning of the boom for, for indie games on Steam and such, but I did play Home when it first came out and it, it intrigued me and I did enjoy it. So I do look forward to, you know, getting the time to try some of your other games as well as whatever else you, you do release, especially because from what I've seen, they always do have a nice pixel graphic style and 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 what have you so i'm looking forward to that especially though the the comic now that you've said that it's you know starting to you're starting to send it out and be available elsewhere i'm you know i'm gonna have to keep my eye out for that just because um you know i i liked i've liked what i've seen of your work and i always like having easy ways to support creators especially canadian creators if that makes any sense yeah absolutely and i mean if i'm being honest the Worse Than Death comic is precisely what I said before that I love. It is a dating system and a horror story in one manga. So I'm bringing those two things together. Awesome. That that makes it even easier. I've mentioned this before, but that makes it even easier to sell uh, for, for some people. Um, so thank you for, for giving me that extra little bit of tidbit to when I mention it to people. Yeah, thanks for thanks for letting me talk uh, your ear off about old and television games and horror stuff. Oh no, no, really, the the pleasure is all mine. I thank you 
thank you so much for for making the time with me and you know letting me letting me ask you some questions and uh, answering answering them and you know it was it was very fun and thank you so much. Awesome, thanks so much. And you know, thanks again to our guest Benjamin for making time to have this conversation with me, and thank you for joining us on the Red Tunic Podcast. And a special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for the use of music from the title track from Road Steep. And if you like this podcast and want to support it and help it grow, please subscribe or follow me on Twitter at Red Tunic Podcast to receive the latest episodes and news. And be sure to share it with those you might or think you might also enjoy it. Thanks, and until next time. <laughs>